Wonderful. Our text today, let's take some time in God's word. We're in Psalm 131. Um, would you pray with me? Let's ask for the, the help of the Spirit as we read, listen, receive, hear from what the Lord has to say for us today. Father in heaven, we do stop again and ask for your blessing on the preaching of your word, on the reading of your word. We, we affirm, Lord, that your words are spirit and they are life. Uh, we know, Lord, that the scriptures are really a source of your grace to us. So as you say so often, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see what the spirit would be saying to us today in and through this text. Help me to handle it accurately and well and pastorally uh, so that it works its way, finds its mark in our hearts this afternoon for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been going through a series in the Psalms called Songs of Confidence. There's about nine psalms that the theologians categorize as psalms of confidence. And so we had this window in the summer, so we picked six out of the nine and said, let's spend six weeks uh, tailing up this summer in these songs of confidence. The idea is that we all know this intuitively. We function at our best when we're confident. When there's confidence in our souls, we're, we're, we're at our best. We're, we're the best disciples when we're confident in the Lord. There's, there's spiritual vitality in your heart. There's spiritual vitality in the church when there's a level of confidence functioning in our hearts. And so that's what we were after and trying to glean that out of these psalms. Now, the strategy for each of these psalms has been see God, look at him. Look specifically at some aspect of who God is. Put your trust in them, in him, and let your confidence increase. That's the formula. That's how it's worked. Take a fresh look at who God is, some attribute of him. Place, actively place your trust in that. Meditate on that, and it will increase our level of confidence in the Lord. We began with Psalm 16. See how the Lord is with me. See how the Lord will never abandon me. Nothing compares to how faithful and reliable the Lord is. That makes me confident. Psalm 23. See how the Lord cares for me like a, like a good shepherd cares for his sheep. No one else can give this kind of care. So I trust in him and that gives me confidence. Psalm 27. It's the Lord's presence that is the safest place against enemies and opposition. I, I can look for other safe places, but nothing compares to the safety that the Lord gives. So I trust in him, and I'm confident in his safety. Psalm 121, the Lord is a great helper to watch over me through life's hardships. Nothing compares to the help that the Lord gives. So I trust in him. And I have confidence in his care. Psalm 91, Bill led us through that. See how sufficient, see how all-encompassing the Lord's protection is for me. There is not a trouble that exists that the Lord's protection is not able to keep me in and from. No one can protect me like the Lord can protect me. 
so I trust him, and I'm confident in him. Now, this is all about a certain kind of confidence. I don't know if you felt a little suspicious, a little uneasy, as I've been talking for these weeks about being confident, and you're kind of maybe wondering, okay, I know some confident people, but is there a particular kind of confidence? Is, what does Christian confidence look like? Because I know some confident people that are, well, frankly, they're just kind of proud. And so is just being confident okay? Is this any kind of confidence? What, what specifically are we talking about here? It is true, not all confidence is godly confidence. We don't want confidence for confidence's sake. We want the kind of confidence that comes from trusting in the Lord. So on this last in the series, number six, we're looking at Psalm 131. And Psalm 131 is, is unique because it takes a little bit different tack. It is not going to read like the other Psalms did. It is not going to have the formula that we've been hearing over and over for the past five weeks. Look at God. Look at how great he is. Look at how caring he is and how protective he is and how powerful he is and put your trust in him. This psalm turns it around. It functions differently. It shows us what confidence looks like personally from a person's perspective. Psalm 131 gives us a divine perspective on what a truly confident person looks like, sounds like, acts like. And the distinguishing mark of godly confidence is, this might surprise you, is contentment. It is contentment that is the characteristic of godly confidence. Let's read the psalm together. It's a very short psalm, just three verses. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed. I have quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's the point I want to make this afternoon. We know we're growing in godly confidence when our confidence is characterized by contentment. First point, contentment begins with humility. Okay, verse 1. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Um, this verse does not sound like a confident person at all. It sounds like the opposite. It sounds like a person who lacks confidence. This sounds like the person that says, uh, I keep my head down. I don't speak up. I don't stand out. I stay in my lane. I mind my own business. I don't venture out. I don't take risks. But is that what's being meant here? Is that what is 
wanting to be communicated and portrayed in verse 1, this, this cannot be what it means. It's always important to allow all of Scripture to help us interpret the pieces of Scripture. And we have more to work with than these three verses. This is a psalm of David, and it is a psalm about David. And so we have his words, these few brief words, but we also have his life to look at in order to help us understand and make sense out of this wonderful brief psalm. When David begins to write, he says, my heart and my eyes, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised. So heart and eyes here, he's talking about his heart is his will. What he wills, what he longs for, his eyes, what he desires, what has captured his sight here. These are the terms used to describe his will, what he truly wants, what he has set his sights on. Listen, it is about what are the things that help form the goals for my life. What are the things that you have set your heart on? What are the things that, you, that has captured your vision, that you have set your eyes on? These are the things that formulate your goals in life. And this is what David is talking about and saying, what I have set myself on is not lifted up, not raised too high, not on things too great, not on things too marvelous. These are words actually being used to describe something we could call as ungodly ambition. But David is not just saying, oh, I'm not going to go for the next promotion. I'm not looking for a better job. I'm not looking for increase. I'm not looking for a better life. He's, he's not talking about that. What he's talking about is saying, my heart is not filled with an ungodly, selfish ambition. Now, this is challenging. This is one of the times where the gospel confronts the culture that we live in because we live in a culture that encourages and rewards ambition without any qualification. The more ambition you have, the more you're admired, the more you're encouraged. Doesn't matter what you're wishing for, what your dream is, what you're striving for, the bigger, the better. And even if you tell me, I'm going to do this with my life, I'm going to make this much, I'm going to accomplish this, and even though I'm thinking inside, there's no way, we smile and nod, say, good on you, you go for it. Because in our culture, the bigger, the better. Ambition, unquestioned, go for it. Now here, David is talking about something different. We need a little biblical theology of glory. Because another way of describing this ambition, the kind of ambition that we're talking about, we could call it glory-seeking. Seeking glory. We all love glory. We're attracted to glory. If you're into sports, that play, that pass, that shot, that goal, did you see it? It was amazing. You beheld some glory. And it did something to you. you got a, it got a rise out of you because you saw an athlete that did something 
extraordinary. Have you heard a musician play a piece and it was extraordinary and it caught your attention because you grasped some glory in it and it attracted you and drew you and stirred something in you. There was a sense, a craving for glory. We were created for this. Oftentimes we call it worship. We were designed for glory. But lay out, let's lay out a little biblical theology, a little grid about this glory seeking. A simple grid that you can use for so many things. Simple grid we use uh, as we analyze a lot of different things. Creation, fall, redemption, glorification is an easy rubric you can use and place us in the seeking of glory. In, in creation, man was created to behold glory in the garden with God. The glory of God is present. They beheld God. They were with God. They were beholding his glory. And they were meant, they were made, they were created to be in that fellowship with God, to have that beholding of glory part of their lives. And then the fall. Sin, the rebellion enters in and changes all that. And that desire for God's glory turns into a desire for self glory. And now I'm going to seek glory apart from God. I'm going to leave God out of that equation. I'm no longer looking to God, to his glory. I'm looking to myself. I'm looking to you. I'm looking to nature. I'm looking to something to behold and to satisfy this kind of glory. And then Jesus comes, comes as the exact display of God's glory, comes in human form, walks the earth in order to rescue us and bring us back to beholding God's glory and to call us from seeking our own glory, a work of grace in us that will one day be completed till we behold him face to face and are changed into the image of Christ, fully glorified and now living in the presence of God for all eternity, four-step the glorification and therein is the plan of God, which gives us a grid for thinking about glory. So we have these two competing desires for glory. The desire and the drive for glory, self-glory, glory apart from God is often called or referred to as ambition. Yes, it can be godly, it can be ungodly, depending on whose glory we're after. Jesus had an interaction with some religious leaders in his day. This is in John chapter 12. And there was a problem. They were, even though they met Jesus, even though they believed Jesus, even though they were drawn to Jesus, they would not confess Jesus because, as it says, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The two glories in competition. And even though they beheld the glory of Christ, they could not surrender themselves to it because their heart and their eyes were fixed on something else. We have David's life to show us something of this. In this psalm, David says, My heart and my eyes are not lifted up too high. And that really has nothing to do with 
as what we're talking about here, as Eugene Peterson would say, a doormat Christian or the dishrag saint, we're not talking about some, some, some lowly self-abasing kind of thing. This is about getting the glory in the right place, not on and about ourselves, but on the Lord. And David had a situation where this conflict came up in his life. He was really at the peak of his career, if we could put it that way, and they were bringing the ark of God back into the city of Jerusalem. And David was so rejoicing and so overcome with worship that he began to dance, dance out in public. And he was just rejoicing in God's glory coming back to the city. But when he got back home, his wife, Michael, who was Saul's daughter, considered that what he did was beneath him. It wasn't to his honor to worship like that out loud and in public. He embarrassed himself. He debased himself. Her eyes were on David's glory and maybe subsequently on her own. But David's eyes were on God's glory. He had to tell her it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes because David has his heart and his eyes set on God's glory, on worshiping God. Psalm 131 helps us check our ambition and make sure it is directed in the right place. Second point, contentment makes us confident. Contentment makes us confident. Maybe that surprises you. It surprised me as I'm studying this passage. I would not have connected confidence and contentment. Picture of verse two is a calmed and quieted soul. The picture he, the metaphor used is like a weaned child. So the, the contrast here is between the infant who knows only need and supply. A little baby feels a tinge of hunger and cries. And mom comes and feeds the baby. It's on-demand feeding. No baby-wise ESO theory here. No scheduling for infants. It is, it is just strictly baby cries baby gets fed on demand when they're hungry they get fed but when the child is weaned there's a transition there's a transition to solid food there's a transition to meal time there's a picture of a child not demanding immediate gratification but a contented son or daughter enjoying sitting next to mom for more than just one reason for more than what just mom can supply and satisfy the immediate need. One commentator, Arthur Weiser, writes it out and applies it like this. He says, the Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breast, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. No desire now comes between him and his God, for he is sure that God knows what he needs before he asks him. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother 
only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper, after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. His life's center of gravity has shifted. He now rests no longer in himself, but in God. I'm not sure what your personal experience is. If you are a Christian, if you've been a Christian for some time, but I've observed something often that early in the Christian life, when a person is newly born again, newly regenerated, first becomes a Christian, it's, it's a wonderful honeymoon stage. Prayers are answered quickly. There are often frequent encounters of God speaking, revealing, showing. There's, there's, there's ongoing senses of of God's presence, and it's wonderful, and it's great. It's on-demand feeding. It's like an infant. You cry, you need. God is there. It's just starting this relationship. It's a, it's a wonderful time. In fact, I love it when new people become Christians because then some of us that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, we kind of get reminded of how fun and how enjoyable and how good it is for, for God to hear and answer prayer because sometimes as you've been at it for a while, the thing slows down a little bit. And it feels a little different. Sometimes there's delays. Now all of a sudden we start stepping into seasons. Seasons that sometimes are quiet. Sometimes seasons that are difficult and challenging. Sometimes there's trials and those trials, sometimes they last a long time. I don't say this to discourage you, but rather to strengthen and mature your faith. Some of that is God weaning us and maturing us and shifting our attention. It is so easy, and I know we've all experience this to some degree or another that we just love the gifts more than the giver we want what we want from god and once somebody tells us this good news you can get what you want from god and i'm all in i say yes to jesus because i want what i want and if you're telling me jesus wants me to have what i want and will give me what i want then great we've got a good arrangement i'm in sign me up church member And then we begin to walk and we begin to mature and things sometimes slow down. It's not bad. It's not, it's not God's mad at you. It's not God's resisting you. It's not that God's forgot about you. It's that God is weaning you. And I want your faith to mature from the gift to the giver because I want you to know me. And I want to raise you up to a place where you're content sitting by me, next to me, walking with me in the garden. Lord, give us more new believers to remind us of those early joys and those great times. Many of us need to be reminded 
Some of you have forgotten. I hope you haven't lost heart. We also need to be very ready, church family, to come alongside that are in that difficult weaning process. Some of you that have been through it for some time and have come through to the other side, and you know the good place that it is. You know the depth of love for the Lord that develops through those hard times. You know, So it's a difficult journey, but it's good as you come through it because the Lord meets you, but not everybody makes it through. And that's where we need to function as a church family because those are the times when people get discouraged and they begin to question, are the promises really true? I thought it was going to happen. He said it was going to happen. Here's the chapter and verse, and it's delayed. In fact, I feel like I'm seeing and experiencing just the opposite of what the verse actually says. And we need to come alongside one another. Oh, you don't need to give up on the promise. You need to persevere in faith. Stay the journey. The Lord will. The Lord is true. I've been at this a while. His word does come to pass. He will stay with you. He will keep you. And so, friends, saints, we need to help one another make it through those kinds of seasons. David's life shows us this picture. It's really an amazing thing about him. The first time we encounter David in Scripture, it's when Samuel goes to David's dad and says, uh, I'm going to anoint one of your sons a king. One of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. So he goes, and it turns out through the story, it's David. David is the youngest. They have to go fetch him. He wasn't even invited to the party. And they go and they fetch him. And so the first encounter we have with David is he is anointed to be king. And then he went back and tended sheep. And then he spent time as a musician in the king's court. And then he spent time as a soldier, eventually leading a part of the army. Then he spent a long time as a fugitive because the present king was trying to kill him. You see what's happening in his life? The declaration from day one, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And then he has years of not being the king of Israel. And all kinds of other stuff is going on in his life. Read, uh, listen to Franz Delich, who comments on this and describes it this way. Through all this, he did not push himself forward, but suffered himself to be drawn forth out of seclusion. He did not take possession of the throne violently, but after Samuel has anointed him, he willingly and patiently traversed the long, thorny, circuitous way of deep abasement until he receives from God's hand that which God's promise had assured him. The persecution by Saul lasted about 10 years. His kingship in Hebron, at first only incipient, seven years and a half. He left it entirely to God to remove Saul and Ishbosheth. He let Shimei curse. He left Jerusalem before Absalom. Submission to God's guidance, resignation to his dispensations, contentment with that which was allotted to him are the distinguishing traits of his noble character. Psalm 131. 
This is what the Puritan author Jeremiah Burroughs called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Would encourage that book to you. If you can manage to read Puritan writing, it's almost like its own genre. It's a unique kind of literature, but I know you can find your way through it and it would be well worth your time to read some of Jeremiah Burroughs. He defines Christian contentment like this, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now my point is that contentment makes you confident. So let's look back a little bit at David's life. Okay, so even though he was anointed to be king on a particular day in a particular season, he was only a shepherd. And yet, so confident as a shepherd that he didn't hesitate to take on a lion and a bear. Okay, okay let's just imagine. I'm supposed to be king and I'm a shepherd. Why do I have to mess with these sheep? And why do I have to deal with this lion? And why don't I just leave this be? I'm not supposed to be here. Samuel said I'm supposed to be there. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. But no, David knew. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. He was sitting, holding on to a promise of his future, yet he trusted God with his present situation. And because he trusted God with his present situation, he was able to confidently take on the lion and the bear. Even though I was anointed to be king, I can abide well as a musician in the king's court. And I will play with so much confidence that my music drives out the evil spirits from the king's disturbed mind. I will do what I'm called to do even though I know where I'm at is not the place that God is promising me to come to. Nevertheless, I'm content where I'm at and I will serve the Lord with all my might where I'm at. And so he plays his music and that crazy king's mad disturbed mind is made peaceful. He was called to be king, but then he was a soldier. Well, if I'm called to fight, then I will fight with confidence. He had the confidence to fight a giant, Goliath. I'm not selfishly ambitious about my position. I'm zealous and confident in my God, and I'm content with where the Lord has me today. And that contentment because it is contentment that is trusting the Lord who knows my days and my steps. That kind of trust and that kind of contentment is what produces in us confidence. Third point, third verse. Trust the Lord for your future. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth, forevermore. David gives us the key to humility, to godly ambition, to contentment, hope in the Lord. What's brought out in this psalm 
What is stressed in this psalm requires a long and patient journey. I felt the pain of this in preparing it, and I felt a little bad for you having to listen listen to it because I know talking about a quieted, calm soul is like not where many of us are at. Holding out some picture of true Christian contentment, and it's like, oh, brother, if you only knew what was going on in the dark corners of my mind and in my thought life and the anger that I'm struggling with and the anxiety that I'm trying to sort out, I am so ruffled inside. I am so unsettled in here, and I'm going to stand up and tell you about a contented, calm, weaned, childlike state of your heart. It's a long, difficult journey from being a crying, demanding baby to a weaned child. Not an easy transition to make. Charles Spurgeon writes about this psalm. He says, it's one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. Speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. But every step of the way is about expressing how we can put our hope in the Lord at each step along this long, arduous journey from this time forth and forevermore, a shot forward. David, look ahead. Okay, here's how it's supposed to be. Now look forward. From this moment forward, put your hope in the Lord. And as he shoots an arrow forward, gets us looking ahead, we have someone even greater than David. The son of David shows up. Jesus Christ makes himself available, makes himself seen, comes to the earth and walks this path before us and more so in our place. Can I read to you a familiar passage in Philippians chapter 2 that describes this about the Savior? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay, tall order. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, which is yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9 is important. Therefore, Therefore, because of all this, because he did this, because he humbled himself, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul says, have this mind in you that is yours in Christ. This is the work of grace in you. If you are in Christ, this mind, this humble 
posture. This Psalm 131 is part of the grace of God given to each one of us who come and receive from the Lord. I'd like to finish with a few points of application, a few pieces of advice that I begged, borrowed, and stealed from Jeremiah Burroughs and paraphrased a little bit, a short list of here's some things we can do in order to grow. I don't want you to be discouraged by this, but actually encouraged. It's like we can, we can take steps in the right direction for this. Things to realize, things to strive for, borrowed from Jeremiah Burroughs. First, realize it is a grace from God within your soul. It all begins with being captured with the right kind of glory. That's where it starts. When you get a glimpse of the glory of Christ, that begins this work of grace. And that's the seed of this gospel that, that germinates and produces and grows and expands. And Psalm 131 gives us a picture of that tree at a mature place. When Paul wrote in Philippians 4, he said he learned to be content in all circumstances. But what he's referring to, he said, I learned to be content whether I had much or whether I had little, whether it was good or whether it was bad. I learned to be content. He's not saying, I learned from trial and error. I learned through hardship. I got so many knocks, I'm finally adjusted to it. No, he's actually making a reference back to the beginning. That he counted everything as lost because of the surpassing work, worth of knowing Christ. So he's seeking the right kind of glory. It was his desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection that enabled him to share in his sufferings and to find himself content in his sufferings. He had his sights set on the right glory. Second piece of advice, pay attention that your strivings are for things above and not on things on the earth. Pay attention, ask yourself, what has captured my heart? What has captured my eyes? If I were to take Psalm 131, verse 1, and ask myself, what has captured my heart? What is filling up my eyes? And just be careful, look, answer the question honestly, and pay attention to what is motivating, driving, compelling you. What are the things that are causing you to set your life's goals upon and about? Are they things above or things on the earth? Third, be honest with yourself, not only about your outward expressions, but also your inner temper. That's the hard thing about Jeremiah Burroughs' book. He says it's a, it's a sweet, quiet, calm inner work. It's on the inside. Now, some of you are quite self-controlled. And so looking on the outside, there's no problem. But be honest, not just about what's happening outwardly, but be honest about what's happening inwardly. Christian contentment is a quieted soul, an inner sweetness. Next. Realize your calling. I mean, realize where God has you today. 
Stay clear in your heart and mind about to what God has called you. He may have called you to be a husband, a father, a wife, a mother, a sister, a brother, a church member, a lawyer, a doctor, a citizen, whatever it might be. And all of us could put several things on that list. These are the things. These are the callings of God on my life. Now recognize what God is calling you to currently and trust him in that. There might be something else on your mind. You could very well be sitting here right now thinking about some place in your future. You don't want to be where you are right now. You want something about your life to be different, and you've got your heart and your sights set on that. My encouragement is think about your calling. Okay, David, you might be called to be the next king of Israel, but today you're a shepherd. Today you're a musician. Today you're a soldier. And as long as it's today, that's your calling. Recognize that and trust the Lord with that. Next point, connected to this one, pay close attention to God's word regarding your calling. We're not only husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and church members and citizens. We are those according to how God has called us to walk in those roles. Does that make sense? In each role, God speaks to us about those roles. There's a certain way of being a disciple of Christ, a certain way of following the Lord in those roles. So it's not merely just, okay, I am this, I am that. How are you that? God has spoken into that. Pay attention, realize your calling, pay attention to what God has said about that calling. In other words, as one great soccer coach said, know your position and play it well. Know your position and play that position well. Next one, practice faith, meaning practice faithfulness, even fight for faith. We actually can actively cast our cares on him. We actually can actively lay our burdens down at his feet. We can entrust ourselves into the Lord's hands. Faith can look ahead and know it's for good in the Lord's time. I know things may not be right today, but faith knows that the day is coming when all will be made right. Without this assurance, discontentment will burn like a wildfire in our hearts, but with it, our soul will come into a sweet, calm quietness, like a weaned child. A couple more. Be very careful with comparison to others. You see others who have it easier, Somebody who has less trials than you, easier trials, more advantages, more opportunity, more favor. The scriptures tells us it's not wise to compare ourselves to others. Because so often when we make those comparisons, we stir up in our own hearts a sense of self-pity, resentment, leading us 
with a disquieted soul. Ruffled, agitated, through making comparisons with others. I love the end of the Gospel of John when Peter's talking with Jesus and concerned about John. Jesus is talking to Peter, Peter, this about you, this about you. And, and, and Peter's like, yeah, 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 Lord, but, but what about him? And Jesus says, what is that of your business? He's mine. You're mine. I've got this for you. I've got that for him. And it's good. Be careful about making comparisons yourself to others. Lastly, Never lose sight of the cross. Never, never forget. Never stop looking. Never stop, stop contemplating. Never start. Everything will make sense with the cross. One of the things we're going to do now is we're going to share in communion for this very reason, to make this point, to never forget the cross. This is how it's all going to make sense. And, and the church has been given this sacrament, this gift, for this very reason. So that weeks and months don't go by with disquieted souls, turmoil inside, but we're brought back, brought back to the cross, brought back to what Christ has done for us. And that's the beginning. And that's the completion of a quieted, contented soul.